Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Christy Canterbury, a wine judge, speaker, and master of wine who also does some writing. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Levy. Great to be here. Nice to have you here. So you grew up in Texas. Yes. What was that like? It was um, something that I tried to get away from as soon as possible. I left when I was 21 and fled to the big city. Oh, this one in New York? Yeah, exactly. It was actually great. There are a lot of wonderful things about Texas. I'm very proud of where I grew up. Great dancing, great beer, good barbecue, and the great outdoors. But there are a lot of things in Texas that I didn't particularly like, like the fact that I grew up in a dry county. Oh, so there was no alcohol where Yeah, you no. None. Zip. Honestly, it didn't matter too much to me because I didn't drink until I was 20. So I missed all the trash can punch parties and fields and, and that sort of thing out in the, in the outbacks surrounding my little town. But it just seemed kind of silly. I miss those parties too, but mostly because I wasn't cool enough to be invited. There may have been some of that in my camp too. <laughs> I'm just, I'm flat out telling you, I definitely was not. I mean, they happened. I heard about them later. but the... I was a study bug, but I always had been. So, What was your family like? I have a Roman Catholic father that doesn't, that doesn't drink and a Southern Baptist mother that does. So um, I grew up with really no wine at all in my life, but two really awesome supportive parents. What brought you to New York? Work. When I graduated from university, I spent about six months working in Dallas in the big bad world of investment banking. And while I enjoyed my group because I was focused on media and telecommunications and I like people and the idea that what I did kind of helped connect people, I realized that doing it in Big D wasn't like doing it in the Big Apple. So I moved. What was that transition like for you? Tough, a little bewildering, hard to get used to Manhattan. But I loved it. It was great that when I wasn't working 22 hours a day, seven days a week, I could get out into the city um, and explore pretty much the world at my front doorstep here. And how long have you lived here now? I lived here 18 years. Oh, okay. (laughs) So how did you make the transition from the finance world to the wine world? What happened there? That was quite gradual. I knew I'd been in finance for five years when it happened. And I knew for at least two years going into that, that something had to change. I love business and I I love numbers, but I didn't love working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was interested in food and wine and travel. Luckily, those things can all be combined, but I didn't know what to do. And I knew that while I liked going to restaurants and I enjoyed cooking, I didn't want to work in a restaurant, at least not in the kitchen in a restaurant. And the idea of transitioning my life to work on the floor as a wine person, as a sommelier wine director, didn't immediately appeal to me because I had been working from day to night as it was. And I wanted to see nightlife in Manhattan. I wanted to be able to go listen to jazz. I wanted to go to Lincoln Center, all that stuff. So I knew that wasn't quite the right thing. So it was still somewhere around food and wine. I considered opening up a tea store because I really loved tea. And I thought, and that wasn't We didn't have tea stores back in, say, 2000, 2001, or very, very few, maybe some in Chinatown. That had crossed my mind. I didn't know how to break into the world of travel, had no clue. So I thought, I like wine. Wine seems accessible. There are lots of different things I could do. 
write about it, talk about it, become an importer, start a store, who knows. So it seemed like there were lots of different avenues I could pursue. So I started reading about it, started drinking it. That's obviously the easiest part. Um, And eventually was at a position where I was going to either sign on with the private equity company that I was working for, have, you know, House of the White Picket Fence, have 2.1 children and, and that sort of thing, or go back to business school or do something, quote, interesting, unquote. Um, and so I thought, well, I can do the interesting thing. And if it doesn't work out, then I can always go back to business school or go work for Edge Fund or do whatever else. And um, very happily, it worked out. Was there anything in particular that pushed you in that direction as opposed to the other ones? Yes, kind of. I I think I did see more entrees into different things and simply just the relationships that you have around wine. Okay. I have wine at a restaurant. Okay. I have wine at a retail store. Okay. I can go work in a retail store. That was the most obvious thing to me as opposed to maybe initially going to try to get a job as a, in brand management or PR in a major importing company or something. So that helped, that helped me focus on where to go in the wine industry, but there was someone very specific who definitely was pushing all of my buttons for a long time. And that was someone that I was dating for two years. He was and still is a writer for children's TV shows and movies, wrote for Sesame Street, and he could not fathom for the life of him why I would be doing something, working so hard, so much of my time, especially as a young person with plenty of opportunities in New York City where you can do anything why would I be spending my time doing something I didn't love? So there were um, many, many, many conversations and ideas and and, in dinners where I was almost berated to hop off the ship and go do something else. In fact, one morning he called me and said, make sure you do have a plan before you jump ship. Oh, that's how he talked? Because I was picturing him talking like the count. Like, I've got one good idea. Ah, (laughs) ah, ah. Like, no, it wasn't like that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, there, there, was, there was some reasonableness behind all of it. Uh, but if without him, I don't know where I'd be today, very honestly. You ever call him up and be like, hey, good job, uh, you know, guiding people through their lives? You know? <laughs> yeah, maybe he misses calling. Uh, but uh, yes, he, uh, he's, he's pretty happy that I wound up where I am and that it's worked out. And so what was your first move? I mean, where did you work at the beginning? Initially, I began working for Vintage New York. Um, and it, at that time, was the only wine store in the city that could be open Saturday and Sunday. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because the I think the laws changed in 2003 or four, where you could be open seven days a week. But at that time, you had to be a farm winery. And they owned Rivendell Winery, um, also now gone, um, up in the Hudson Valley. So I was walking by on New Year's Day in 2001, ready to change my life, energized by the idea of a new century and all all of that. And saw that they were looking for help. I happened to live in Soho at the time, and it was a five-minute walk from my front door. And I thought, hmm, work on Saturday and Sunday. Get some sort of street cred behind me. It was kind of cool that they had a wine bar where you could taste everything in the store as well. So I'd have a chance to taste some things too. And just do something before I finish my my full-time job um, in the wine industry. So I would commute an hour and 40 minutes each way to Stamford, Connecticut to my private equity job. And on the weekends, I would work eight hours a day at Vintage New York. I did that for six months. And I guess... went crazy. Oh, really? You, yeah. It was a little nutty. A little too much work, <laughs> even if it was a lot of fun. So how did it work out for you? It worked out well. It was a great, it was a great place to meet some people in the business, in the New York wine business, um, as well as some friends that I worked with who were also maybe five nights a week. One was a chef. Uh, one also had a started a, a winery herself later on. So that was a great initial point for connecting in the wine business. How did that set you up for the next thing? I mean, did you realize at that time that you just weren't going to be able to do the seven days a week working thing? Uh, yes. And it was temporary. So um, I did that for six months. And then my full-time position came to an end because there was a hard stop for everyone in that program. I spent two months that summer studying all sorts of things in wine and then started to look for re- other retail stores where I could make a difference somehow. And um, I really don't know how um, it came to me, but I read about Italian wine merchants and um, thought that they had a very unusual, cool concept. And so 
um, along with a couple of other places that I simply walked in and said, hey, I'd like to talk to someone about working here. I walked into Italian wine merchants one day and the stars aligned because they have a highly unusual business model where there's a, a beautiful retail store. Most of the action happens at desks that are behind the retail portion of the business and they needed someone to do business development for them. Websites, uh, PR, cost cutting, lots of numbers and management, which I could bring, though certainly it was in a different capacity that I was typically using it um, in finance. I could bring a lot of that business management sensibility into that business. So they were probably psyched. They were, and so was I. It worked out really well. And what did you learn seeing that operation? It sounds like a quite of a different show than Vintage New York. Oh, gosh, completely, completely different. Vintage New York was much more of a casual, hey, come have a nice glass of wine. Here's something to take home or to your family. You know, New York wine, who knew? Because even it's trendy today. Then people thought New York wine was bad. How could it be good? What is that? It's ridiculous. Local was not very popular. And certainly New York wine wasn't then. So I went from that to really high-end wines, the Probably the the average price point of a bottle of wine was $50. I'm not sure that Vintage New York had a $50 wine at that point. And to you know, very high-end collectors, people with thousands, tens of thousands of bottles in their cellar, um, very different, very, very different business model. So what did you see trying to meld the wine world with the business world? I mean, trying to be that bridge, what did you discover? Well, not just in Italian wine merchants, but all along the way, I found that a lot of times in wine also in restaurants, because I did eventually work with restaurants, people are focused on other things. It could be customer service. It could be having the best wine. It could be having local tomatoes that are in season, whatever. And they're less focused on the numbers. And so putting in man, uh, systems to manage things, that is something that seems very fundamental and natural to me, was not at all very natural to a lot of people in food, wine, establishments. What were some of the big wins and big takeaways? You're like, oh, wow, that worked. Uh, it could have been something as small as changing computer systems to become more efficient, uh, which of course requires an outlay, but then people are suddenly much faster in their calculations to uh, when I was buying for national restaurant groups, making purchases on behalf of an entire group as opposed to location by location and improving margins tremendously. That must have been a big say. deal. It was. That was a lot of fun. So how did that come about? Eventually you left retail. and Left retail, did a little segue into PR uh, with New Zealand wine growers. Very good cool, work there. fun time. It's gone up a little bit in the market. Yeah, I hear we're their number one market now. Yeehaw. Very good. A little Texan coming out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a great time because New Zealand was just coming on the stage and New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc was new and cool and much loved. Did that for a year, along with some other things. It was the first time that I worked for myself. And I definitely got a taste of how hard that can be. I bet. Um, especially when I was still very new into the wine business and had done some wine studies, but um, was not as far along in them. What's Certainly the hardest part of having your own business? I think the hardest part is having three jobs at once. The job that you are finishing up um, and invoice the job that you need to do today and finding the job that you need to have tomorrow. And so you ended up in restaurants. Yes. After uh, my stint with New Zealand wine growers, um, I ended up doing a lot of buying for high-end restaurant groups. And the first was with Smith Walensky Restaurant Group when it had 16 restaurants across the U.S. That seems like a lot of restaurants. It was a lot of restaurants. It helped that most of them were steakhouses. And then we had five other concepts here in New York City. But it was a lot of restaurants, a lot of people. And they were also very large restaurants. These were I think our smallest restaurant was probably 250 seats. Um, our, the flagship location in New York City had over 400 seats. So there was a lot of wine being sold there. We sold $125 million a year just of wine. That didn't include beer and cocktails. That's a pretty big number. And there are a couple, a couple of pennies in there. So how did you make that transition? I mean, when you went, who did you interview with and what was that experience like? Uh, I interviewed with the, the father and son team that run it. Um, Alan and Michael Stillman. And I was very happy that Alan Stillman was very clear with me that he was hiring me for my business background. Oh, I see. He wanted me to manage numbers. And 
I so um, it feels like that's helped you all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, continuing all the way through to today, and and I did love it, and I was managing lots of numbers as well as people and that sort of thing. But um, it was very much, I think, with the Stillmans, I could clearly deal with numbers. Um, I was a fairly agreeable person, which you need. I to mean, have I think a, so. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, you need to have a an easygoing personality um, when you're working in a, in a hospitality business. And that was pretty much it. You know, when I think about it, there's not a lot of people who have strong business backgrounds who work in the wine field. Did you feel like you really stood out for having those skill sets? I definitely think that it helped. I also think that having negotiation skills helps a lot, um, especially when you're dealing with a lot of very large wine corporations who, and in a lot of different states, it's very difficult to try to control different wine pricing in, in different states and in different, whether you know, it doesn't work this way in every state, but allocations or, or needs, it's very hard to get what you need. So to be able to find, to always find an open window when a door closes to keep continuity of a product is very important. I mean, very difficult is one way to phrase it, or a complete nightmare might be another. I mean, trying to deal with, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's a lot of different states, a lot of different laws. Yeah. And then there are the characters behind it. I mean, there's, um, there, there are a lot of long rooted people, especially at Smith and Walensky. They're all fantastic, but there was an old kind of the gruff Irish bartender mentality that I had to deal with. Um, so there's a, 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 there was a very delicate balance of trying to be disarming and charming as well as just keeping it real. If someone were doing that now, I feel like now is an era where restaurant groups are getting bigger. It's not really a mom and pop cottage industry so much in New York anymore. You see restaurants at the high end fine dining level where they're part of large groups. Mm-hmm. They're quite successful. They're maybe even dominant in the market right now. If someone were moving into that role as a wine buyer for a number of restaurants, maybe in different states, what would you advise them? I mean, what are things that you learned that you thought, huh, helpful? Definitely, it's important to allow whomever is in charge of the wine list or the people that are in charge of a wine list or cocktail program, let them have their own say. Give them ownership. Because then they are proud and protective of, of their voice on that list or in, that, uh, in, that, in those creations for a cocktail list or what have you. And they are also going to be much more likely to help you with the things that you need to do to create a cohesive corporate list if there is one or simply to keep your deals with various partners in various states or restaurants. Really focusing in on having other delegation, having people be your eyes and ears on the ground and hands on the ground, but at the same time focusing in on trying to make those margin deals on quantity. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's very important to establish a friendly bond with whomever is in charge of a restaurant, especially at a, at, a, at some outpost, uh, because I dealt a lot with that when I, after Smith Alonsky went to work with Culinary Concepts by Jean-Georges, when you're managing a, a restaurant in Atlanta and Doha and Istanbul and opening in Vancouver, you need to have people that, that enjoy your philosophy, that enjoy being with you, that learn from you, and that are, are willing to bring issues to the forefront to think the way perhaps you would or hopefully try to think the way that you would if you were there managing that yourself and then tell you about those problems and then try to resolve them before they either surface or become truly a problem. So a sense of ownership and not necessarily people who are trying to make your life harder but a little easier maybe. Yeah. And I also think, um, I mentioned it just a second ago, but making sure that people are learning something, if you have something to offer them, and that certainly should be the case, Make sure that they can grow because there's no point in tamping down someone's potential. They'll only go somewhere else or they'll just not be as smart and as keen in their job for you as they could be. Did you have situations where you felt that that was happening to you where it was a little harder to you know, learn than it should have been? Yes, I have. Um, yes, I, I remember asking one of, um, one of my first employers if, he might be a mentor for me in terms of tasting. I was really keen on learning, you know, blind tasting and what are all the things that I should be looking for and not just blind tasting, but quality tasting. How do I know that wine A is worse than wine C or B? And I was told flat out that I should 
just taste a lot of wines and figure it out for myself. And there is truth to that. And I do appreciate that. But I have learned many, many things from many amazing tasters um, simply by them telling me one hint or another. And I definitely felt I was shut out at that point. And I kind of wondered if it was just tough love or if it was truly, if I teach you some things and you are young and curious and ambitious, maybe you will leave my organization. Maybe you will somehow be competitive with me one day. Perhaps not, but you never know. It was very strange. And I've not found many people in the wine business to be that way. Generally, I find people to be incredibly generous with their time, with their knowledge, um, with uh, sharing their connections. So I, I was really taken aback. It does seem like it's changed from a world where people could be shut out in the wine business, kind of a fraternal organization or, you know, a smaller business to now where it seems like kind of anyone with a Twitter account could somehow be part of some wine angle somehow. I think that's true. There are definitely specific people who are very active on Twitter who aren't in the wine business at all, who just take a great interest um, in wine and have a love for it. But I think that the wine business is very global and with social media, it's become even more so. I have friends who don't friend me on Facebook because they see that my account is all of these wine people and it's, it's, it's used for wine. It's business, but it's fun business. Smith and Wensky, I would imagine that would be a lot of California, a lot of Bordeaux, and then culinary concepts from John George. I, I would imagine the wines would be a little different. So did you see changes in what you were buying and who you were dealing with as a result? Or? Definitely changes in a few ways. At Smith and Wensky, we had the Great American Wine List at the time. So most of the restaurants were all USA wines, which was kind of fun. I had a really cool wine from Montana on one of my wine lists. It, it, it was, you know... But, some of it was very interesting and unique and exploratory in terms of what all of the states were producing in, in the wine world. And of course, a huge focus on all of the West Coast production. But then uh, there were five restaurants in New York where I got to really get my my swigs of Bordeaux and Burgundy and Gruner Veltliner and all those great things. But also with Smith & Walensky, I was exclusively dealing with the U.S. and exclusively with mostly national accounts. And that's a very different, that's a different structure than when you buy just within a state or two. So when I transitioned to culinary concepts, we were opening primarily in hotels all over the world. And while I, there were two restaurants in Atlanta, one in New York, uh, one in Scottsdale, and I had connections locally in each of those markets, the national people I, I was less in touch with in terms of purchasing. It would be, hey, I'm, we're opening in Boston. Who's your guy there? And then I would be relayed to a regional or a local person. That seems like a lot of work. I mean, honestly, you know. It's it's a big web. And um, to make sure that you get to the right people and to the people who are going to respond to you, it's it's nice to have connections at a national level because it'll send you right to the, the top of what you need as opposed to you know, making you call up a, an, a distributor's office and figure out how to get the wines from there. But then going internationally was really something else. And my first experience was in Istanbul. Oh, what was that like? It was wild <laughs> in the best way. I, um, there was really just one kind of two major importers of international wines when we opened in 2008 and they had a limited number of wines and I couldn't get anything else in. So I had to work with what there was. And there were all kinds of fascinating things, obviously outrageous taxes. Uh, port was not understood by the Turkish government at the time. So it was illegal. The beverage port. Yes. And it couldn't be imported. So we couldn't use it in a cocktail or we couldn't use it in a dessert. It it was it was really interesting. But the most exciting thing to me about that particular job was learning about Turkish wines. And um, I still today am a raging fan of Turkish wines. And that was a great introduction. It really opened my eyes to what else is out there in terms of grape varieties and production. And it's a really exciting wine scene. So that was that was one um, unusual circumstance. And then there was... But I mean, selling to a Muslim country must also mm -hmm. be a little unusual, right? Well, Turkey and Istanbul were easier than Qatar. But you know, 
Turkey is quite secular. So, and especially in Istanbul, it is, people go out and they, they like to booze. They like to drink and, and have a nice time. And they like to drink well. So whether it was whiskey or Bordeaux or champagne, they treated themselves to really nice wines. So it was quite easy. If you go into some of the more central parts of Turkey, it's a little bit more difficult when it comes to wine. And did you find local spirits like Raki? Oh, yes. We had, um, we had a number of those. And, and those were fun. Almost always drunk at the beginning of a meal. And it was just something that people called for. Uh, it's, it wasn't, people just had their favorite brand. You could introduce guests at the hotel to Raki and other local specialties, but most people weren't that focused on it. Oh, I see. So it was just something that people did. Like, you know, they have their favorite brand of cigarettes and they smoke them. Exactly. And they don't really That's ask for comparison. cigarette sommeliers. Yeah. So, but you mentioned a Muslim country. So when about a year later, I went to open two restaurants in Doha, Qatar, that was really quite difficult because there is one importer. There's a, um, a monopoly importer. There are very few select wines. A lot of the wines that went into Doha at that time um, were less expensive wines. So it was very hard to build a wine list with higher end wines. Sometimes I would only get a bottle or two um, and they were outrageously expensive. But it was even really hard to train the staff because while no one in Qatar works really, unless they're working true? in tourism. Yeah. Unless they're really working in tourism, they don't work. So we had the United Nations, basically. We had people from all over the world who came to work for two years in that hotel. Some of them had never tasted wine before. Some of them wouldn't taste wine. And even if they would, I sometimes couldn't get wine to taste them on. We could only taste wine during certain hours in the hotel. Sometimes if there were other workers in the hotel, um, we wouldn't be able to, we, wouldn't, we weren't allowed to have tastings. I couldn't, I couldn't even get wine for the team for you know, late night meetings when we were all finished with our day and everyone wanted just a glass of something interesting. Sometimes I couldn't even get that. Yeah, it was very tough. Training was incredibly difficult. How did you uh, surmount some of those challenges? What worked for you? Sometimes I would just have people smell the wines, um, which was you know, an interesting idea. They felt that they had to drink it to understand what it was like. But that worked also really well with people who didn't want to drink for religious reasons or health reasons because I, I kind of hit home the fact that when I said, really, what we consider tasting is actually smelling, then they would believe me and actually do it. So that way I could taste a lot more people on a lot more wines or have them smell a lot more wines. You understand. It's probably cheaper to <laughs> pour one glass, pass it around. You're like, yeah, we didn't really use much in samples today. Exactly. And then I could take that same bottle and go taste another 30 people on a different staff in a different restaurant um, on the same wine. How did you feel that you were being responded to not just as a wine person, but as a female wine person. That was definitely curious. And I, I will tell you that in Istanbul, I think it made me popular with the servers. And it was interesting because in Istanbul, our team was almost entirely women. The front door was a woman. Beverage was a woman, me. The kitchen was a woman. We were largely a team of women, which is highly unusual. And I definitely saw that the service director and the front door person, and they had to fight for respect. And I think somehow being the, the booze girl, <laughs> the, the sommelier gal, really helped. The servers actually really took to me well. Um, and I think that that was a big benefit there. In Qatar, I'm not so sure because people came from all over the world. It definitely made me an unusual visitor to other bars, though, because the only place that you could have alcohol in Qatar was in a Western hotel. And you had, and some of the hotels also said you had to come in Western dress in order to sit at the bar. Oh, that's interesting, because I would think it would be the opposite. Like, you mm -hmm. always hear about the movie where the lady has to cover her head, you know, when she's out in the Muslim country, but you're right. saying that they were actually asking you to dress as Western so they could more easily identify you. Right, but usually ladies couldn't come. Oh, I see. So I would be the only lady sitting alone in Western dress at a bar. I was definitely an outlier. But were there other female wine stewards that you saw in Qatar? No. 
None. Anyone who worked in a restaurant, 99% of the people who worked in restaurants were men. Did you feel at the end that it was more in the line of a handicap in terms of, you know, how some of the access to beverage was a handicap and access to staff was a handicap? Or did you feel like it was turned out to be a net positive? I think it was a net positive. I think also just being friendly and communicative and being excited about the product that I was talking about kind of had an infectiousness that made it easier for a lot of people to talk to me in general, whether it was about when shift ended or whether it was about a glass of Sauvignon Blanc. Did you see different reactions to different kinds of wines? I mean, besides the fact that port was not allowed in, did you see like different cultural reactions to categories like rosé or to white wine? Yeah, absolutely. In Turkey, I, I just about went insane the first night um, that I was there. Second night I was there. We had a huge dinner for 20 people. Lots of lots of uh, our, our Turkish diners would come in in massive groups. And they had ordered some pretty nice Bordeaux. And I kept seeing it in ice buckets all over the dining room. I kept pulling it out of the ice buckets, setting it beside the ice bucket on the service station. Walked back to 10 minutes later, it was back in the ice bucket. I went crazy. I found out that Turks prefer... Their reds cool to cold, um, and which I think kind of goes along with the idea that oh, let's think about this: Turkish tea, Turkish coffee, lots of smoking in Turkey. Hookah. There, there's a lot of tannin. There's a lot of mouthfeel and texture, also in in the various foods, and I think that that's part of it. So that drove me crazy, and I had to learn to accept that. And actually, a lot of nights it's very hot in Istanbul. And having a glass of really refreshing red, even if it seems a little bit more tannic, it's actually pretty nice. Another thing that I learned in Turkey is that sweet wine is just not cool. Uh, I believe that there are two, maybe three wines that are sweet or off dry that are made in Turkey. It is just not something that they, that they drink, which is quite surprising considering all the amazing Turkish desserts that there are. Oodles of honey and, and puff pastry and yeah, nope. They eat sweet, but they don't drink it. Did you find a different approach to marketing was helpful? Like, do they have different reactions than we would to say rarity as a concept or different origins of different wines as a concept? Or what drives someone in Turkey or in Qatar to buy a wine? What do they want? Uh, in Turkey, I think that they want French wine, mostly. That is the, you know, it's French and then Italian and then possibly Turkish and generally, kind of your everyday drinking wine is going to be Argentinian, Australian, or Chilean. And in, in that's really the pecking order. And in terms of rarity, especially in Istanbul, people with money like to show it. And so high-priced, even if it's not rare, is very important. Rare, good, but high-priced and rare is really good. Um, and I would say that in Doha... People were a lot more price sensitive and, and the prices of wine and of booze was really expensive in Istanbul. It is extraordinary in Doha. And so I think people just wanted a decent enough drink at a price that wouldn't crush you. So is it different working in a country where instead of an apero hour or, you know, time for aperitif, there's like a call to prayer hour? Like, I mean, are there things that functionally affect when people drink or how? In Qatar, there are certain hours where alcohol can be served, uh, very strict, and when alcohol can be bought, and only uh, Westerners who have a permit that they've paid for can buy it on certain days and certain hours. It's, it's very complicated. But I think that in Istanbul, people can pretty much drink whenever they want. Um, now there are, uh, with the government crackdown that started about two years ago, it's been going on for a while, but really came down hard about two years ago, there are more limited hours for selling wine and even beer, even in stores. But drinking can happen pretty much anytime. So what was it like moving from steakhouse where the steaks are the steaks and that's the focus to chef-driven John George, something a little bit more adventurous, maybe a little more Asian influence, going in a little bit more celebrity chef? How, how did that affect what you were doing in your day-to-day? -day? Oh, it changed it completely. There was no longer a slab in a cab. It was very nuanced. The, obviously, Jean-Georges' food is very precise. 
um, the, when we were traveling to all of these different destinations all over the world, the kitchen crews were so impeccably well-trained and everything came down to milligrams of difference. So that meant that the wine pairings and the cocktail pairings, because Jean-Georges has huge focus and a great passion for cocktails, had to be really precise. And actually, interestingly, it was very difficult for the cocktails because cocktails had to have a certain profile, perfect balance of sweetness, acid, et cetera, et cetera, just enough bubble from the club soda, what have you. And it's amazing how different lemons are in different countries. It drove me mad. I can see that. Different citrus. Different citrus, different power of citrus, different times of the year gives you different citrus. Yes. And mint is different everywhere. So lots of different things would affect our cocktails. And of course, there's ice. Different hotels have different types of ice machines. So you shake more or less, you get more or less dilution. It's not cold enough. I, yes. There were some headaches in there. <laughs> yes. That is an understatement. Sounds like a lot of time on the road for you. I spent a lot of time on the road and I, I still do, but um, I, it was not atypical when I was with Jean-Georges to be on the road for four or five weeks at a time. There was actually one point when I went to open a, our second restaurant in Atlanta in Buckhead and went for, I think, maybe five, six days and ended up being on the road for about two and a half months because we opened the restaurant and the beverage manager quit the day after we opened um, as things happen and there are always tons of turnover at, at, a, at an opening. And then it was Thanksgiving and lots of the team from New York was going back home. And so I stayed and then went directly to Scottsdale to open a restaurant there. So it was pretty intense. But then again, last year, working for myself, I spent 50% of my time on the road, mostly in Europe. So, In terms of career growth, what was going on, John George, and then after that? Well, we were set to open with Jean-Georges, I believe it was about 15 restaurants in the next 18 months or so, and then the global crisis. 2008 kind of thing? Yeah. And that went to like 04 restaurants. Um, So um, there was a lot of repositioning of things, and I ended up going to work back with the Italian wine merchants, which was a lot of fun because the Italian wine merchants decided that all their fancy collectors um, with massive sellers were buying a lot more than Italian wines, and they wanted me to help them buy those wines. And it was a really great time because I was getting to teach people about wine, and we were selling a lot more wine. Sales were off the charts. But also, I was able to get lots of allocations that no one would have been able to because no one could buy them. Um, And it was a very fine example of having a, a very wealthy set of clients who may have been affected but weren't that affected, and they could still buy a lot of really high-end wine. So it sounds like what you saw was a shift in momentum from people who wanted to go to a restaurant and pay celebrity chef tax for their wine on the wine list, celebrity chef markup, let's say, to the rise of retail, which was often driven over the phone or by email, targeting collectors who may have spent that money on a market before but now are pulling back but still want to have good wine so they're spending less but spending more at retail that's absolutely accurate and what they would do would they would talk to their sommelier pals who'd turn them on to lots of different wines at all the great restaurants in this city and others and say hey me and my pals want to come in and we're going to bring in whatever 2002 burgundies or we're going to bring in 1980 Sasakaya, and we're going to occupy six, eight, ten seats in your restaurant. We're going to have all of our wine glasses out. Can you bring some decanters? We're going to have a lovely show. People are going to see that your restaurant's full, that there's lots of wine going on, and we'll be a centerpiece for you, but we're bringing our own wine. We're not paying for yours. The sommelier was probably wanting to try that expensive wine as well. They probably weren't getting a lot of opportunities during that period to open up real fancy bottles and they were probably psyched. Yeah, definitely. So you were, instead of doing more business sense liaison to Italian wine merchants, you were doing more customer focused collector liaison. Yes. Well, I was really doing the buying. So I, I would also participate in seminars and private tastings for private clients, but I was really focused on, okay, where are the fancy nap cabs, how can I get some more? 
okay, someone has a birthday. I need 1952 Bordeaux. I need to go find that wine somewhere in the market. Uh, I was really focused on procurement. Must have been an interesting time. It was a lot of fun. To have money to spend. Yeah, and to be able to buy lots of big guns. It was an awful lot of fun, especially when, again, there was a lot of wine in the market to absorb and we could absorb the high-end stuff, which no one really wanted. So how had Italian wine merchants changed in the interim since you had been there? It had grown much bigger. There was one, really two, actually no, two portfolio managers um, who were the people that handle all of the collectors when I had been there the first time. And when I returned, I think there were eight. Uh, there was a big sales team, big marketing departments, uh, writers on staff. It totally changed. Did anyone ever turn around and be like, you know, things got really good in here when somebody brought in those new computer terminals? That were- <laughs> I'm afraid that, that, you know, there are a few people at that by the time I returned that remember that. It sounds like you also got the chance to travel more to wine producing areas as opposed to areas where wine was being sold in the luxury market. Is that fair? Yes. And that has um, certainly, that was certainly the case during my time as a master of wine student as well as now that I'm working as a master of wine and for myself again uh, as a uh, speaker at conferences and, and, and festivals, as well as judging wines at different competitions and traveling to places uh, for articles. So what were some of the realizations where you said, huh, never picked that up from the books, but you know, there it is, I can see it with my own eyes. Actually, that uh, just happened to me in Chablis. I was just in Chablis for eight days in July, and we think not speaking for you, I think, um, generally of Chablis as being chalky, minerally, oyster shelly, uh, sort of a wine, um, and the finish gets longer and longer as you go from Petit Chablis to Grand Cru. Bam. And that's so not the case. I, I was in Chablis for about five days last year and had walked through the vineyards a good bit. Um, this time I walked through all the Grand Cru's and a large number of the Premier Cruz and then a bunch of the other just village level vineyards. And it really changes. You can look at the soil as you can in many regions and see why they taste like they do, what's richer, what's going to be lighter. But also walking through a certain parcel, I will never look at you know, certain Premier Cruz again and say, oh, that's Chablis. Ah, oh, that's going to be a richer style because that's so-and-so. And that in a region that I spend plenty of time in, I, Burgundy is certainly one of my first loves, I realized just how much I have still to learn about Chablis during those eight days. Feels like you went through kind of a very disciplined and protracted study period about wine when you were studying for the MW. Definitely um, disciplined, yes. Did that kind of help you get through? Yes, you can't get through that without it. A lot of discipline, a lot of time management, And certainly knowing how to manage your expectations for what you can do and others' expectations too. So what do you mean by that? I think that when you study, a lot of times you think that I think that I can master something in a very quick defined period of time. But the thing with wine is that so many things are interlinked. So it's perfectly fine to learn about one subject, whatever, sulfur, pretendomyces, what have you. But then you realize that that's linked to total acidity or pH or something else. And I often found that I could sit with my Oxford Companion to wine, for example, and go from one entry and then go to each of the all caps words in that entry and keep learning. And things were so interconnected that saying, okay, I'm going to learn about X for the next 20 minutes did not work. So I had to learn to give myself much longer periods of time to really feel like I was mastering a subject and understanding all the tangents that could come off of it than I thought I initially needed, which meant that I in turn had to manage um, my other commitments outside of my wine studies. Oh, so you had to go back to work and say, yeah, this is taking a while. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But really it was more towards um, just my, my social life and even managing study time with my study group. How long of a period are we talking about? I was in the program for seven years. I did not, I wasn't quite focused enough for the first two years. Um, so it was really five years, four years to pass all the timed exams and then a year for the dissertation. So that seems like a, a good chunk of time. A lot of time. A um, lot of time thinking 
about nothing but wine. Uh, a lot of time with um, a couple of, just a couple of people in my study group, which was amazing. Wouldn't have made it through without them. No question. But a lot of time also alone. Because even if you master or talk about something with other people, there's some processing time that goes into that. And then how do you apply what you've learned? Because you have to write an argument that you understand what you've learned and you have to argue for a question in order to prove that you understand. But you have to do that more in the MW and you could have gone MS, but you chose not to. So I wonder why. When I began the Master of Wine program, I had not started working in restaurants and I was more drawn to the Master of Wine program because it is a little, it's more academic, it's more comprehensive in, in in the scope of matter that it covers. And the Master of Wine exam also covers the business of wine, current events in wine, things like so that made sense global for you, warming because it covers business, right? As well, um, also you know, taxation, distribution around the world, those sorts of things. And I really wanted to under get the, I wanted to under, understand the whole picture, all the way around. Right up next to a lot of those comments, it feels like you really did want to master the subject. That seems like the underlying comment, like you really wanted to get it. Uh, I did. And I don't think you ever really can because it's always changing, right? Um, things, uh, what we know, what we think that we know to be true about fermentation science, um, some will remain true, some will change. Some of what we thought was wrong because now we've discovered some other molecule or we've realized something else. But being able to understand a big chunk of what goes into the wine business uh, did really entice me because I realized that so many people... Lots of people know just enough to be dangerous, and that's true in any subject, right? And I oftentimes would hear someone say something and think, that can't be right. And I wanted to try to not make mistakes. I don't like making mistakes. So I, tr- I, I wanted to try to understand more. You didn't like making mistakes. Yeah. Study bug. Going back way, way when. So when I look at the UK market, I see a lot of people who are in the wine trade who have MW, and it seems like that's almost like a requirement. For them to be in the trade but when i look at the u.s market it doesn't really feel like that so what was it like studying for that exam in the u.s absolutely the the uk and the european market highly values the master of wine credential and they understand better especially in the uk what a master of wine must achieve in order to have those post nominals fancy name um, and and so that makes it very highly valued, especially for supermarket buyers and, and and lots of other positions. It's it's very important. In the U.S., the Master of Wine is not as well known. It's changed dramatically since I started the program, just because we have more Masters of Wine in the U.S. now, um, and also because wine has been becoming more popular. People want to understand. Well, if I'm hiring someone, what should I hire them to know? Um, so it's not just the Master of Wine credential, but other. Credentials we see in people's and, and email footers all the time. Lots of different programs out there. It was very exciting to start the Master of Wine program in the U.S. Uh, for the network. It was amazing how much just being in the program would get me into a winery to ask a winemaker questions, or someone would talk to me about a career path. You know, Leonardo Lacazio bothered to give me time because I was in the Master of Wine program, and he knew that that meant that I was going to be in, you know, someone who was looking to further my career. Um, he certainly didn't have much time to do things like that, so I was very grateful for that. But it was always a bit of a challenge for the Master of Wine candidates, and I think the Masters of Wine, to have people understand what they do. Because it, I think that people look at my business title, which is just Christy Canterbury Dash Master of Wine, and they're kind of like, you, you think you're a master of the universe in wine? They have no idea that it's a title. Um, it's not like PhD or MBA. Do you get more He-Man references or Doctor Who? Um, it's more Avengers now. Oh, actually. okay. Got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's funny, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, and while the Institute has been on a campaign to try to improve the visibility, I think there's still a lot of work left to do. A lot of people, when I'm introduced as a master of wine or tell them what I do, they say, oh, are you a sommelier? No, I have been, but that's not, no. What do you do? I mean, honest question. Uh, I spend my time between three things primarily now. I write about wine. I talk about wine. 
uh, mostly at conferences, um, and that could be most uh, conferences tend to be trade, and then festivals could be trade or consumer. I do a lot of consumer classes as well. And then I also do a lot of wine judging, both for wine competitions, for uh, magazines, for online retailers, that sort of thing. You segued out of some of the categories that you've been working on before, restaurants and retail. Uh, yes, but I still have my fingers in them. I do consult with restaurants. Um, I have a couple of restaurant clients now where I'm either helping them spruce up their wines by the glass list or um, helping them try to bring in wines from a specific region that are not yet in the U.S. Or maybe they want a proprietary wine, uh, let's say um, Sauvignon Blanc, that they're going to serve by the glass, that sort of thing. Uh, and I do work with a couple of retailers, both online and store retailers, who might be saying, okay, again, here's a proprietary wine. Which of these three Pinot Noir blends would best work for our clientele? And then I have to go and figure out, okay, well, who is your clientele? What do they like? What, do, what are your top selling Pinot Noirs right now? And then I can help them determine a blend. Um, and then also um, simply some sometimes it's here, review a dozen wines. Tell us which to sell or write notes so that we can use them when we do put these wines out to sell. Did you find that the MW credential helped you get access to restaurants and retail? I don't think it helped with access to restaurants and retail so much because I had done those things before. So those references tend to come from people that know me from those parts of my career. What the MW has done is definitely get me into speaking gigs and that sort of thing, especially in Europe. Again, Europe really does seem to appreciate the title. And I spend a lot of time speaking at conferences and, and doing seminars in across Europe and occasionally in other places as well, but mostly Europe. How much would you say it took you in terms of layout of expense to pass the exam from that seven-year period? I think that it's probably about $60,000. That includes, um, not, that's fees, to actually be in the program. It's travel to and from exams. It's uh, glasses. Break a lot of wine glasses when you're tasting a lot. Um, also trying to find the right glass, a glass that can hold mm, three and a half ounces of wine, just enough to get you through an exam, not too much, not too little. Pens, books, all sorts of things. Oh, and wine. I can see that being a big expense. Huge expense. It's really heartbreaking, the number of bottles of Grand Cru Burgundy and Brunello and high-end Central Otago Pinot Noir and Champagne that have just gone down the drain that were really there to taste and that I just didn't have the time or wherewithal to drink. $60,000 sounds like a lot of money to me. Yeah, I, um, I was talking with someone recently who was talking about his business school expenses and that was one year of business school. Certainly the uh, return on business school is much higher um, than on Master of Wine um, credential, but I think I get the lifestyle return. If someone were saying to you, you know, hey, I've thought about being an MW, what's that going to take? I mean, should they keep in mind the figure like $60,000? Is definitely. that a number that's a reasonable number? I definitely think that it is. And just like with everything else, whether it's the price of milk, well, not the price of gas these days, uh, prices go up. Um, and I think the good thing with the Master of Wine program is that uh, the classes are becoming more selective. So the people that are in there are really the ones that are raring to go. So you're in with a really good group of people that are kind of going to push you forward. Um, so the as opposed to just plunking down your money and showing up, people are really in there to do it. And I think that's good for the cohesiveness of getting people into the program and through the program and learning a lot. Were you getting a lot of feedback along the way? Like, hey, this is what's up with uh, where you're at? I did not. When I began the program, you were given a syllabus. You attended a one-week program in one of three places around the world. It was called a residential seminar where you learned how to taste. You were given mock exams. You had some classes on viticulture and distribution of wine in, say, Japan or China, those sorts of things. And then they said, bye-bye. We'll see you next year. You came back the second year and they said, hey, do you want to take the exam? And you said yes or no. There are mentors, but not all mentors are created equal. Some have more or less time and more or less interest in helping candidates along. So there wasn't much feedback at all. In fact, the very best feedback and the most consistent feedback that I received was from other members in my study group. 
So did you find that that background passing the MW was fundamentally practically helpful to you as a person who does writing and speaking? I mean, did the skill sets carry over? Definitely. Because the Master of Wine exam is written. So you have to be able to build arguments. Uh, you have to be able to construct clear sentences. It's amazing how a phrase put in the wrong place, or comma put in the wrong place, changes the meaning of a sentence. So that is certainly very helpful. And also the rigor of the tasting exam is extremely helpful. From a technical standpoint and from a professional standpoint, it really irks me when people say that tasting is subjective. What we like is subjective. I definitely agree with that. But in terms of quality and technical tasting, there are some pretty clearly defined parameters. And the rigor of that and being able to taste consistently again and again and again and again is one of the reasons that I have a job now. Now that you've done more professional writing, what have you discovered along the way? What's worked for you? What hasn't? And how is writing for different publications different than writing for one publication? I really enjoy writing for lots of different publications because I write for the trade. And that includes the trade trade, as in people who are buying and selling wine, as well as for winemakers. And I also write for consumers. And I write for consumers that read magazines like Decanter, and I write for consumers that read online like Snooth. So I have lots of, I can use lots of different voices and that's a lot of fun. And sometimes I can take the same subject matter and write two totally different articles, say one for the trade about sales of rosé wine, and then write a very technical article about new ideas in rosé winemaking for a winemaker's magazine. And that's a lot of fun. It's, it's great to reuse a category without having to reuse the idea. Do you find one of those more challenging? Definitely writing for winemakers. Anything, or, or, or viticulturalists, anything that goes into a technical magazine always has me a little nervous because I don't want to make a mistake. Going back to the whole thing, I don't want to be wrong. And of course, sometimes we all are, but that's what um, also good editors do. And certainly for the technical magazines, they have people that are very well-versed in the field, double-checking things. You found some good editors along the way. Oh, I found some great editors. There's nothing like a great editor to point out that, to say something more simply, to chop up compound sentence into two sentences, to rearrange the order of sentences in a paragraph or to rearrange paragraph. That is invaluable. And it's I, I really enjoy that even when it's really annoying and I have to rewrite a significant portion of, of a piece, which happens, I think, less and less. But when someone asks me to do that, I realize that it's, it's a good exercise and it's for a good reason. On the other hand, there's nothing like having someone chop up your work, not telling you about it, and put it up. And you just don't know. And you say, I did not write that. That's very frustrating. But the part that I, don't, I haven't seen yet is the Christy Canterbury book. Ah, indeed. Um, I have contributed to three books, but I don't yet have my own book. And in fact, when I left Italian Wine Merchants and started on my own again, that was one of the big things that I was going to do. And what I found is that the rigors of keeping up a lifestyle in Manhattan and traveling a lot internationally for my job have meant that that project has kind of fell by the wayside. It's not off the table. It's just sitting on the edge. And I, I find it very difficult to write bits and pieces and then try to reconnect it all. Um, I definitely need to set a block of time aside, which every once in a while I do. And then I end up usually working through that. So that book needs to come. So in terms of the speaking engagements, do you find that the audiences are, are different in different parts of the world? Do you find that it's a very different thing to speak in parts of Europe than in the States or to different parts of the media or trade? Yes. Consumers are always just fun and eager anywhere you go, whether you're in Europe or in the U.S. And the, in the trade, I definitely find that U.S. conferences are much more casual, uh, much more talkative. There's always a lot more questions, you know, kind of comments from the peanut gallery sort of thing, uh, which can be a lot of fun. Interactive speaking is, is always a lot of fun. In Europe, people do tend to be more serious. Kind of depends on where you are within Europe. Uh, I definitely find that Eastern Europe is very serious. Uh, very serious, very respectful, always dressed 
dressed up kind of, you know, Sunday best sort of thing. So they tend to be very, very serious. And that's also, of course, there's a, a sometimes a language thing happening there. It tends to be a much quieter room and, and sometimes a little bit harder to get a feel for what the audience is thinking. So yeah, there are very different environments. And what about the difference between writing and speaking? Is one easier for you? Yes and yes and no. I sometimes feel that speaking is easier because sometimes I can get the take the temperature of the room and throw in another joke or dial down the technical things or dial in the technical things. There's immediate gratification in speaking. In writing, it's kind of all in my own head. So I don't know what people think until maybe it goes online. If I'm writing for, an, you know, say, Snooth or Decanter Online or something, and then someone comments on it, and then I, I reply. So there's that. But sometimes it's easier also to write and to have the time to write, take a step back, three days later, go back, reread, rethink. Of course, one that just has to be careful not to continue rewriting and actually turn in the piece. But have you, you know, ever gone up like white whale subjects where you just had a hard time getting it onto the page? I have. And, and it surprises me sometimes when it happens, especially when it's a, an article that I proposed and maybe I've been to the wine region for a few times and sometimes I just can't feel it. Um, I, I remember an article that I wrote, uh, was on, I'd been writing it for two days and it was only a thousand words. It was on... Ontario wines, and I've been to Ontario about five or six times. I love the wines. Um, I'm very keen on them, and it was the third piece that I'd written about it, and I just couldn't make, I couldn't find the hooks in the article. Um, and by the time I finally finished it, I was like, got it, finally. But it took an extraordinarily long amount of time to, to make it all come together. And I would have thought that it being my third piece that I'd written in fairly yeah, a fairly small amount of time. It would have been easier, but for some reason I was having a little bit of a writer's block. So about 15 years in the wine business, how would you say it's changed over the period of time? A lot more wine drinkers, more sophisticated wine drinkers, more enthusiastic wine drinkers. I think that wine drinkers don't worry about wine drinking being taboo. I think that people were a little cautious about wine drinking 15 years ago. Uh, maybe not in New York City, but in other places in the U.S., uh, certainly in the center of the country or in smaller towns and smaller cities. And I think now they think nothing about having a glass of wine with dinner. It's pretty common, uh, whereas they might have kind of leaned towards temperance before. Were there things that have become very apparent to you over the period of time that you didn't realize when you were thinking about making that move from finance to wine? Are there things that are quite obvious or m maybe that you just learn the hard or the easy way that would have been an impact on that original decision if you'd known them? I think that while I was flummoxed at the idea of trying to go into or break into or find a way into a business, I think it was a lot, it was easier than I expected. And part of that is because I think the wine business is generally really friendly and open to smart people, interesting people. So I'm grateful that it was possible. I didn't, I remember reading books by great wine writers and I never would have expected that even working for a decade and a half that I would know them by name and have their email and see them and give them a kiss on the cheek when I see them. And that has been really exciting. When I was considering going into the wine world, I never thought that that would happen. It just seemed impossible. Um, it seemed hard enough to quit the finance world and, and move into a different world. And it certainly was hard. It requires a lot of energy, a lot of focus, and a lot, a lot of determination, a lot of self-confidence, but not overconfidence in order to, um, to find the right path for yourself in an industry while being honest to yourself about what you're good at and finding the right places to apply what you're good at in the industry. Were there times where you had to be nicer to yourself? A period of time where you thought, I need to cut myself a little slack or provide some chance for myself to have a little more fun. The entire time that I was studying for the Master of Wine program was pretty much that way. <laughs> also because I was traveling um, all over the world and working pretty big jobs at that time. And it, probably a lot of my friends would say that that's true all the time. Um, I'm 
I'm a pretty hard worker and that, but I think having the right people around me definitely helps me take a step back and having my friends around me here in New York and sometimes my, my master of wine friends from all over the world when I'm, I'm in another country, um, that helps me to take a step back and say, hey, enjoy the night. Christy Canterbury, it's been harder and easier than she thought it was going to be. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, Levy. Christy Canterbury, Master of Wine. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.